0: this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshalldon. Business history was my first professional destination as an academic. I wrote articles about financial history in a book about Canada's most prominent merger promoter and financier during the heady years of the Laurier boom. At the time, I thought that finance was a little understood part of business history. Today, we are going to explore what is truly one of the least understood areas of business history, that of professional sports. To do this, I have Andrew Ross with me in Montreal, the home of the Canadien, the most iconic team in the NHL. Andrew is a professional historian and archivist who works with Library and Archives Canada. We are going to talk about his wonderful business history of the NHL, entitled... Joining the Clubs, The Business of the National Hockey League to 1945, published by Syracuse University Press in 2015. Andrew, welcome to Witness to Yesterday.
1: Greg, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. First, let me
0: come clean. I was the external examiner on your dissertation about a decade ago. I actually thought it was a superb thesis and strongly urged you to publish it. Well, here we are today to talk about that thesis, but I find that only one half of your thesis is actually in the book.
1: What happened to the other half? You might recall that the thesis that you reviewed, which took the history of the League up to 1967, was quite long. Uh, but uh, when I decided to bring it to publication I could not bear to do as many do and carve it up by cutting detail so instead I cut it chronologically and I ended at the end of the second world war which was sort of a logical break so after that I'll be working on a sequel to uh, take that up to 1967 so you'll be happy to see that well
0: maybe you could even bring it up to date
1: and make it a real popular bestseller well that's so the dissertation went first 50 years of the league so i would have to probably do another two or three books to get it up to 2017.
0: (laughs) Uh, All right. So your book begins with the birth of the NHL in 1917. Uh, The league is now just over a century old. Tell us how it
1: all began. It's quite fascinating actually how how the league got formed uh, and it really gives us some insight as to how difficult it was to keep a hockey league together and by extension I guess we would say how much credit those early owners and administrators of the league deserve for designing something that eventually would last a whole century. The league just had its, uh, its anniversary in 2017 as you alluded to. So the National Hockey League was formed in 1917 from teams from the National Hockey Association which essentially broke up because the Toronto owner couldn't get along with everyone else. This is a story that's quite popular in uh, sports leagues as well. Seems to be a bit of a recurring theme in the NHL. Very recurring, yes. So this guy's name was Eddie Livingstone. And although he had actually some pretty good ideas about hockey, he's quite an innovative guy. Basically, his problem was he didn't get along with the other owners. The main thing that had soured them was in 1916, he actually merged the two existing Toronto franchises together into one team to save on expenses and increase attendance. Remember that this is right in the middle of the First World War. The NHA is having a hard time especially the Toronto teams, having a hard time getting people to come. Uh, And so, and Toronto had never really been a professional hockey city. It's kind of interesting. Amateur hockey was really strong in Toronto. Stephen Harper's book was about this, about how strong amateur hockey was. But the fans and the local entrepreneurs preferred amateur hockey. I think the entrepreneurs, because they could make more money by not paying players.
0: So, tell us a little bit about after that very promising beginning. Uh, how did the league survive some very hard times? You had the Roaring Twenties and the prosperity of the Twenties. I would imagine that that really boosted the uh, the fortunes of the early NHL. But then all of a sudden, bang! You've got the Great Depression. So. How did it survive this?
1: Yeah, the league actually in the first couple of years were a little bit touch and go. They, the arena burnt down and they went down to about three teams. But yeah, after a few years, they really started getting going. Uh, Eddie Livingstone was still uh, out there somewhere trying to form his own league. So the league was actually expanding again to Hamilton and to set up a team in Hamilton called the Tigers. And then 1923, uh, they got the idea that they should expand to the United States and actually put up some serious feelers. And that connected, as you said, to this, this roaring 20s, uh, expansion of sports markets, especially in the United States, centered around Madison Square Garden, which was the biggest arena in the world. Sat 17,000 people in, in a, New York City. In New York City, that's right, and so um, it did do very well. And up by 1927 or so, the league got itself up to about 10 teams, right? And about six of them were American, right? So th- it was a big expansion era. Uh, much of the credit for this, of course, goes to the league president Frank Calder, who kept the uh, the owners together. It was a big challenge uh, integrating the American owners who had their own ambitions. Uh, they loved hockey as a game, but weren't so clear on the, uh, the competence of the Canadian owners, we'll say. So uh, there's a bit of a fight between particularly the Boston owner, Charles Adams, the owner of the Bruins, and Frank Calder. They got into a tussle. But in the end, Calder won out. He was able to make the compromises that allowed the league to survive. But then, as you say, this depression comes along. So the Great Depression was a great challenge for the league. It was unevenly felt across uh, Canadian cities, some cities much more desperate than others. Detroit, of course, the home of auto manufacturing, was devastated. And in fact, uh, we start seeing uh, the weakness of the individual franchises. So the Detroit uh, team and the Olympia actually go bankrupt and have to be taken over by James Norris, who's an expatriate Montrealer. Who had become wealthy as a grain trader the legendary ottawa centers team that had been so successful on the ice in the 1920s essentially had built a new arena but can't really make a go of it and wound up moving to st louis and then fail in st louis right in the middle of the depression the pittsburgh pirates had to move to philadelphia and become the quakers and they also uh, weren't able to make a go of it either uh, james norris is actually a quite interesting character here he essentially is the savior of the league He's a guy who's made a lot of money in grain trading and in a depression. People still need to eat, so he's still making money. Uh, But he's able to have enough um, cash flow to take over the Detroit Olympia. He essentially gets his money into Chicago Stadium, also buys shares into Madison Square Garden, which owns the New York Rangers and is the home of the New York Americans. They had two NHL teams. And because of his support, basically the NHL is able to survive to the end of really the Second World War.
0: So you describe the NHL as many things. It's an entertainment product, it's an association of independent clubs, it's a cartel, it's a partnership, and it's a competitive
1: league. So what really is the NHL? Well, I love the I love the phrase that Clarence Campbell Called it so Clarence Campbell in the 1960s, he was the third president of the league. Uh, called it a rather unique sort of in, of organization. Uh, in fact, he was called it a name, and it was very interesting this focus because really it was all those things you said. It was entertainment. It was this association. It was a partnership. It was a league, but it's also, as I argue, an institution. You know, it was something beyond that. And we think of the NHL today. Do people think of it as a business, or do they think about it as the game, which is often how people talk about.
0: So it wasn't uh, a conventional business, that I understand. Uh, But as a business, was it Big business, at least in some sense of the word?
1: I think it was, yeah. It was in the sense of being culturally big business. There was a line about the sports business where someone said the sports business was smaller than the cardboard box industry. But you don't read about the cardboard box industry in the daily newspaper. Well, that's a great quote. <laughs> it's a really good one. I think he was talking about the industry in general. But there's a lot of economic activities that just don't resonate with people. Sports has this clear cultural resonance with uh, with people, particularly in North America. It, right they start to identify with it when you see someone walking around with a Toronto Maple Leafs sweater on or a Hab sweater do you think they're wearing a brand or do you think no that's that's my team right it's a real identity thing that's, that's quite a bit different than your average business
0: well that's for sure so how is the business history of the NHL different or the same as other professional sports in North America such as baseball, basketball and football with you know the NBA for example, in basketball and the NFL and football
1: that's a really good question as well. Early on when the, the, the leagues before the NHL got formed in Montreal, the model was actually lacrosse leagues and they consciously in 1909 shift over, to baseball the nhl owners say baseball is the model so they structure structure their player relationships the organization of the league around baseball which is a closed cartel where you decide who's going to be let in and who's going to be kicked out uh, unlike for example the football association that some are familiar with in in uh, in the united kingdom where when you win the league below you automatically get promoted upwards In North America, they have these closed cartels, which are quite unique. That keeps all the money together. It also keeps all the teams in the big cities, which keeps them viable. So the NHL learned that model, but then it actually taught some of the other leagues. Football was sort of on its own trajectory, but basketball is actually formed uh, by many of the same owners as the NHL teams. And the relationship there is based on this model of the modern multipurpose arena, which is essentially a forum no pun intended so that you could have a basketball team a hockey team the circus music events in the same building so what you start seeing um and this starts with hockey is that the owners of the hockey team are the owners of the arena become the owners of the basketball team and then they actually that is the functional unit that basically we still see here today. If you look, think of an example, um, particularly in Toronto with the Raptors, which is essentially the Raptors, the Maple Leafs, and the the arena are all owned by the same corporate entity.
0: Right. So obviously there are more similarities than differences. And I really like the way that you apply Avner Graves, the the, uh, economist, his definition of an institution, which is a system of rules, beliefs, norms, and organizations that together generate a regularity of social behavior. And this really, I think, does apply to the NHL. It really is much more of a business institution or system rather than a single enterprise. So what has changed in this institution of the past century.
1: So here here is where we have to get into the part I didn't publish, I think, because the story I tell in joining the clubs is very much about how the the NHL developed that system and became that institution. By the end of the war it was in a very interesting place where it had come through a war with the support of Frank Calder and kept playing hockey in a war, you know, in Europe where young men were dying. If you think about this, Ordinarily, we might not expect that sport, something so evanescent and so sort of frivolous, would actually continue as a serious activity. But that was because arguments were made about hockey being a morale booster, about, again, being rather essential to Canadian identity in some ways. It was also very important, Frank Cal- Calder was very clever in emphasizing the and uh, playing with the binational character of the NHL. And that's going back to your previous question, something that makes the NHL quite unique. Baseball, you have one Canadian team. Basketball, you have one Canadian team. But hockey, you've got this combination of American and Canadian teams, and they actually have to play with the legal environments and and, and toy with that a little bit. So um, what has changed is since 1945, I think uh, Grice's definition really f- starts fitting that much better in the sense that it's hockey started structuring the entire economy of hockey, the ha- entire industry of hockey, if you will. Where young boys now, young girls, grow up playing hockey, and the NHL is their long-term model, right? That is their goal. Even though the NHL doesn't give any money to, you know, six-year-olds or seven-year-olds playing hockey, they have structured the rules, they've structured the organization. Everything is funneled towards the NHL as the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal, And so I think that's where you get that broader definition of it being more than just a business.
0: Well, that's for sure. And I certainly know, growing up in Western Canada, the influence of the Western Hockey League and, in a sense, the way in which it uh, fed directly into the NHL, which is the reason that there are so many kids from Prairie Provinces that ended up playing in the NHL. But that was their dream from the beginning and they were being trained for that even though only a very small minority of them would ever be able to even get a shot at the NHL.
1: Yeah, and it's what's interesting is that in the before 1967, which is of course the great expansion from 6 to 12 teams in the NHL, individual NHL teams essentially own or sponsor the amateur systems all the way down in cities like Regina, cities like Winnipeg, and even in Toronto, they really contribute a lot. They own amateur teams, and they really support that. Uh, in 67, they stopped doing that because there's now 12 more teams. They can't create they can't create new Canadian cities to have hockey players in them, and they can't effectively share the territories. So they give up, they institute the draft, and just give money to the organizations, you know, 25000 $50,000 per draft pick. What's interesting about this is that even though now they've they've stepped away from having direct influence, the system keeps ticking along and keeps funneling the players, right? To the right. point where you know some people have argued, argued quite recently, they've looked at junior hockey or essentially adults playing hockey who have been paying below minimum wage and we still see that in some ways as being acceptable because the ultimate goal is the NHL, is the pro contract. so that there's this trade-off that is still... and the NHL is not even directly enforcing that. It's actually being enforced by society at large.
0: Well, let's return to the idea of a cartel. Uh, It's defined as a group of producers who coordinate the supply and distribution of a product. So far, that is exactly what the NHL does and historically did. Uh, It does so in order to keep prices artificially high. Now, here there's a bit of difference because what they're engaged in is uh, actually something else, but they're still trying to control the market in this way. But the other aspect of this, as all business historians know, cartels are notoriously unstable. They always seem to fall apart. Yet the NHL has been remarkably stable for a very long time. Why is that?
1: It's a great question. In some ways, I'd say that's the background background business history theme to my book and that's the title comes from that is Joining the Clubs is that the essential part here is actually keeping the clubs together and you're you're right in in, in, in stating that it's not about prices so we think of a cartel of OPEC or some sort of producer cartel about protecting prices the cartel In the NHL, in some sense, it's actually a cartel of cartels in the sense that it it associates with the American Hockey League and other cartels that are operating in the same way. And what it does is it controls players and where they go, and it also controls the arenas. And having control over players and control over the infrastructure of playing are key to the stability because, uh, as I mentioned with a relegation system like they have in England, it's a real problem when a team gets promoted that only has a stadium of 15,000 people and it plays against other teams that have stadiums of 65,000 people because then the money doesn't even out. So what you start seeing in hockey is there's only so many arenas that can actually sustain the team. So that franchise has a high value and there's a great incentive to stay together because if you take your team out of the league, who are you going to play against? The, the league creates the value. The, the team by itself cannot produce by itself, right? A game is at least a two-part operation, not a solo operation. So that's so the nature of the product itself actually facilitates that that maintaining that cartel. But it's still a great question because before the NHL was formed in 1917, your average persistence of a league, even at that level, was five or six years. You know, there's always some sort of pressure that broke it or created a rival league. Uh, or push it to dissolve.
0: Well, Andrew, as you know, the Champlain Society was established to preserve the documentary history of this country. I'd like to talk to you about the primary sources you used. And, you know, usually in writing a, a business history, you depend on the records of the enterprise to reconstruct its history. But I noticed that there was actually quite little in terms of records for the NHL as a whole. So what did you use to reconstruct this history?
1: That was a little bit of a disappointment to me, because there had been previous work when the NHL had given uh, historians access to their archives. And when I asked, they chose not to. Since then, they've actually digitized a lot of it and have been a little bit more open to more specific requests. But the answer to your question is, I did everything else. I looked at everything else. It actually forced me to be quite creative in putting together the picture with newspapers with court records. Uh, Conn Smythe, who is the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, actually um, his descendants put his records in the Archives of Ontario, and he has essentially his copies of a lot of the league correspondence for when he was the head of the Board of Governors, so that helped a lot. Um, And there's also smaller collections from Quebec to Boston that that I dug into to kind of put that picture together. And then what happened is after I did the dissertation and came to the book, the Hockey Hall of Fame made me aware of a collection of Board of Governors minutes, so minutes of the verbatim minutes of the Board of Governors meetings, which means every word every owner said to uh, each other at a meeting that took place four times a year. This stuff for a historian was gold. And I note that you really used
0: that for your chapter on the Second World War, which was fascinating. And you use it to very good Effect, I think. So, can you describe that?
1: Yeah. Well, what? Like I said, this is these are unique records. I would say in business in general. You, uh, if you're doing business history, you see board of directors minutes, and they're usually the agenda and a little bit of a short blurb of the discussion. But due to a controversy in about 1925, where some owners had argued about what had happened at the last meeting, they hired a permanent stenographer to come to every meeting to record every word that was said at a meeting. And so these are fascinating because you see the personalities emerge from the owners. And they're very frank with each other. <laughs> um, we do know that there was fights at some meetings. Those aren't recorded, but there's a couple of fist fights. but you see the personalities come out. You see who doesn't like each other. And what was fascinating about the Second World War is there is one meeting where they actually talk about whether or not the, the league is legal or not. One thing I didn't mention about cartels, but you'll know uh, well, is that cartels are not really legal in North America. The government doesn't like them. Asian, Europeans, they like cartels a little bit more than we do. That's another reason they're unusual here. Uh, And in this discussion, this one meeting at the NHL, they talk about whether or not what they're doing is essentially would survive in a court of law. And one of the owners is quite self-aware. Fred McLaughlin of Chicago basically tells the other owners, if this were go to court, we would lose. Well, particularly in the United States,
0: you have very strict rules and laws against antitrust, and you had constant
1: investigations. I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah, what well, the surprising thing was the other owner, I think it was uh, John Reed Kilpatrick from the Rangers, who seemed surprised by this. He wasn't aware that 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 sport inhabited this rather Fragile uh, space in the in in the legal space. Uh, of course, how hockey had survived in doing this was on the strength of the cultural power of baseball in the United States. Uh, baseball was also had a court case that that had seemed to suggest it was legal and all right, but basically it. Uh, The judges kept punting it back to Congress to say, you figure this out, you figure this out. And there's great political reluctance in in the the United States to take on baseball and later to take on football. And hockey and basketball take advantage of this.
0: Well, you talk about your title, which is basically about keeping the clubs together, uh, joining the clubs together and then maintaining... Uh, solidarity across the clubs. And so what's key in all of this are the owners of the clubs. And you've mentioned one of them already, Conn Smythe, the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs from 1927 to 1961. But I also read that he was a halftime hockey operator. He actually owned a quarry, and he needed to make money from the club. Can you just describe Conn Smythe a little bit and uh, how he saw...
1: Hockey. Yeah, Conn Smythe is is quite the fascinating character. He was the the son of a journalist, um, and had uh, was a guy with a lot of ambition. He went up north, I think, to the to 1915 or so, staked out a claim, uh, and didn't do so well at that, and came back to Toronto and had been involved in sports, uh, got into coaching with the uh, U- University of Toronto amateur team and had a lot of friends. He was good at networking, and uh, he took advantage of some of that mining money that was flowing into the Ontario economy, into financial circles, to uh, convince his friends essentially to help him buy the Toronto St. Patrick's, turn them into the Maple Leafs, and then comes up with this uh, essentially a revelation that hockey will not survive in Toronto unless it has a big rink like these American rinks. So in 1931, he he arranges to build Maple Leaf uh, Leaf Gardens, uh, which is a rink that's big enough now to sustain this new business model in the NHL. But all the while, he is also running his quarry c Smythe for sand is the name of his quarry he often employs the toronto Maple Leafs players to to work there in the summer and so he's always got his eyes wide open um to to the to the bigger picture unlike some of these other owners like like jim norris who was this fabulously wealthy grain trader charles adams who had a a grocery store chain that was uh you know had done very well where for them uh Although the Boston Bruins made a lot of money for, for, for Adams, he probably could have sustained losses uh, in order to get himself a Stanley Cup. Smythe could not. Smythe was always about the bottom line. I, I wrote a paper about the Second World War and his behavior, and I called it the paradox of Con Smythe, because at the same time, when he personally signed up to go overseas to fight in combat— in Normandy and was injured at the same time he's telling the staff back at Maple Leaf Gardens don't let anyone into the arena for free don't let servicemen into the arena for free you know we've got to keep making money so he's this fascinating character where he's totally committed to being a Canadian patriot and also a businessman at the same time.
0: Right now what about Frank Calder? the president of the league, how did he manage these owners and keep everything afloat? Because you mentioned it earlier, but it must have been quite a task because these sound like characters and I, I doubt that they would have seen eye to eye on at least some
1: things some of the time. There's a quote which I forgot to dig out for this, but it was something along the lines of Calder calling the owners children, right? That he essentially saw himself as kind of the father of the children and he had to you know discipline them on occasion and he was quite good at that, but also make them play well together. It was a very challenging period. As I mentioned before, he got into, uh, he did get into personal um, conflicts with owners like Fred McLaughlin, who later became an ally of Calder, uh, Charles Adams, who essentially left the board and and gave his board seat up on the Bruins because he couldn't get along with Calder anymore. Um, But Calder did survive through this. He was a great diplomat. He was, in the 1930s, it's probably due to him that he was able to keep rival leagues from overtaking the NHL. And As with any executive director, I think, of an organization, there's a power that accrues to that person as the last man or the most veteran man standing. I think you might draw a parallel to later Clarence Campbell, who's president for over a quarter century, and now Gary Bettman, is that Gary Bettman has probably been in his seat longer than any other owner. And so he becomes the site of corporate memory, uh, you know, and he's the guy who really knows how it works. And so they gain trust over time. So the longer you can stay in the job, um, you know, the more successful you become at it.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Andrew. Thank you. My guest today was Andrew Ross. We talked about his book, Joining the Clubs, The Business of the National Hockey League to 1945, published by Syracuse University Press in 2015. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society thank you. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallden, and this podcast was recorded at McGill University on June 19, 2019. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst and we look forward to you joining us again.